Welcome back to episode three of Over the Top, a great war podcast. We're here, folks. The war has begun, and that's exactly what this podcast is about. On this episode, we're going to begin a multi-part series that I'm calling the Huns of August, which will cover key battles from the first month of the war. If you listen to episode two, then you already know about the political failure to find a diplomatic solution to the July crisis after the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated by a pro-Serb radical named Gavrilo Princip. The failure to find a peaceful resolution will be one of the greatest mistakes world leaders have ever made. The Reaper will take out the scythe and strike down Europe claiming millions of lives. War has been declared and soldiers are on the move. Germany is in full motion with its Schlieffen plan. Their troop size is roughly around 2,200,000 soldiers. The plan called for the majority of its troops to attack France from the north through Belgium, while the lesser part of the army holds off Russia in the east, waiting patiently until the majority defeats France, takes Paris, then can regroup to take Russia. France also had a war manifesto, and it's called Plan 17 and their troop size after mobilization massed to roughly around 2,900,000. The plan was first developed around 1911 in the event that war would break out with Germany. Unlike the Schlieffen plan, Plan 17 was more flexible and would decide what approach to take when the time came, and in 1914 that decision would be made by General Joseph Joffre. The French disregarded the possibility of a large German attack from Belgium into northern France. They believed the majority of the Germans would take the easier, more direct route through Alsace and Lorraine. Joffre, ignoring the Schlieffen plan, even though he was aware of it, focused his troops on attacking the points between Verdun all the way to Lorraine. If you're looking at a map, Verdun, Alsace, and Lorraine are just about east of Paris, roughly around 250 kilometers away. This left little to no defense from the Germans in the north, leaving it to the outnumbered Belgians to hold off any German invasion. But why did Joffre choose this plan of attack? Why not team up with the Belgians? It's because after the Franco-Prussian War, France lost Alsace and Lorraine after Germany annexed it. Taking this back would be a major morale victory not only for himself and his army, but for all of France. But let me veer off for a moment and take a step back, because this is a great time to talk about how people felt about the war. The majority of the high command on all sides believed this would be a quick war and that they would be home by Christmas. Most of these generals experienced war from the Franco-Prussian War, so for them to say they'll be home by Christmas was not only naive, but rather buffoonish. The citizens of Paris took to the streets with mixed emotions after mobilization posters were put up around the city. One Parisian woman testified, quote, What movement in Paris, my heart beating, I approached the poster. Near me, a woman almost fainted. Then there were young men who burst into a war song. Already? End quote. The poster in bold letters said in French, and pardon me if I butcher this, I don't speak French, Order de Mobilisation Générale, which translates in English to Order of General Mobilisation. A Frenchman named Jacques Bainville said the following after the mobilisation announcement, quote, I shall always see the official white paper that, 
around 4 o'clock appeared at the post office nearest my house and that, at the same time, was making its journey all through France via telegraph. This official telegram stayed up for a long time on the walls of city halls and train stations. Those who lived through those days have never been able to remember it without thinking. Here are a few words, so simple and so terrible, that decided the fate of thousands and thousands of men, the card on which a nation's destiny was played out, end quote. Neighbors who never spoke now spoke to each other. Feuds between individuals seemed to be put aside. Mother-in-laws now embraced their son-in-laws, who they would normally be lashing insults at. People who normally wanted to choke one another seemed to be put that aside to embrace the coming of war. Ladies sent, sent young men off with a smile, telling them, make us proud, while wives embraced their husbands, not wanting to let go. Louis Barthas, a barrel maker from Periac Minivois, had this to say from his diary about the coming of war, quote, August 2nd, 1914. A broiling hot August afternoon, the streets of the village all but deserted. Suddenly a drum roll. Probably a traveling merchant setting up shop on the main square, or maybe some acrobats announcing their evening performance. But no, it's not that. When the drum falls silent, we hear the voice of the town clerk, the commissaire, as we call this unique embodiment of local authority. So we lend our ears, expecting to hear the reading of a new decree about rabies or keeping the streets clean. Alas, this fellow proceeded to announce the most frightful cataclysm to afflict humanity since the flood. He announced the greatest of all scourges, the source of all evils. He announced the general mobiliza mobilization, prelude to the war, the accursed, infamous war, which forever dishonored our century and blighted the civilization which we were so proud. End quote. In most cultures, it's the young men so full of testosterone who are so eager to prove themselves worthy to some invisible cause they've created for themselves. They yearn for war, so quick to think this is part of their destiny or some so, something of the sort. And what they so-called yearn for will be the exact same thing that will haunt them for the rest of their lives if they do survive. They'll see the war in their sleep. They'll see it awake. They'll see it when sitting in the park or sometimes when walking down the street. They'll see it in a cafe when trying to eat or in a bar while sipping on a drink. Everywhere they look, something will remind them of the horrors they once yearned for. But unlike the young, the older men, a little more wiser, seen it as nonsense and something that would cause the world nothing but grief. To people like Barthas, the world going to war was senseless. It was a political game played by the rich and anybody below the upper class were the pawns. In Germany, the attitude was a little different though. See, Germany had unified after the end of the Franco-Prussian War just 43 years prior to 1914. Formerly Prussia, they were now a unified German Empire. And unlike France, whose military wasn't exactly training for war, Germany had been training its soldiers for several years prior to August 1914. They had already begun to build up, build up its military power. They were ready for war, and their mindset was like the younger generation. They had something to prove to the world. Men both young and old took to the beer halls, prosting to the German Empire and to the war. A man who you may heard of, a man named Adolf Hitler, left Vienna in the spring of 1912 because he didn't agree with the politics in Austria. He was living in Munich at the time when Germany declared war. He had this to say about the announcement of the war from his book Mein Kampf. Quote, The struggle of the year 1914 was not forced on the masses, no. 
by the living God, it was desired by the whole people. People wanted at length to put an end to the general uncertainty. Only thus can it be understood that more than two million German men and boys thronged to the colors for this hardest of all struggles, prepared to defend the flag with the last drop of their blood. To me, those hours seem like a release from the painful feeling of my youth. Even today, I'm not ashamed to say that, overpowered by stormy enthusiasm, I fell down on my knees and thanked heaven from, from the overwhelming heart for granting me this good fortune for being permitted to live during this time." End quote. Hitler submitted his request to enter, enter a Bavarian regiment to King Ludwig III, which of course was approved. Hell, boys the age of 14 and 15 years old were sneaking in. Why not take this guy? And even this monster would describe the war after a few years in the trenches as going from the romance of war to the horror of war. He said that just days in the trench, boys would come back looking like beaten men. Very strange hearing that man say those words as if feeling compassion. It's like hearing the devil say it's too hot outside. It just doesn't make sense. Ernst Junge, the German warrior and author of what could be the greatest memoir from World War I titled Storm of Steel, describes when his train stopped in Bazincourt, a small town in Champagne, arriving to the front lines for the first time, quote, we listened to the slow grinding pulse of the front, a rhythm we were to become mighty familiar with over the years. We had come from lecture halls, school desk and factory workbenches, and over the brief weeks of training, we bonded together in one large and enthusiastic group. Grown up in an age of security, we shared a yearning for danger, for the experience of the extraordinary. We were enraptured by war. We had set out in the rain of flowers, in a drunken atmosphere of blood and roses. Surely the war had to supply us with what we wanted, the great, the overwhelming, the hollowed experience. We thought of it as manly, as action, a merry dueling party on flowered, blood-bedewed meadows. No finer death in all the world then, anything to participate, not to have to stay at home." End quote. Now let's veer back on the road to war. Germany had seven armies and cavalry headed to the Western Front, totaling about 1,500,000 men. The 6th and 7th armies took the left wing and was made up of 16 divisions. The 4th and 5th took the center, which made up of 20 divisions, and the right was the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd armies, which made up of 34 divisions. That's a lot of troops on the move. When I was in the army, I was never in a unit larger than a regimental size. In the American army today, an infantry unit is comprised of the following. It goes from the biggest to the smallest in this order. A corps which is two plus divisions, a division which is three brigades, a brigade, a brigade or regiment which is three to five battalions, a battalion which is three to five companies, a company which is three to four platoons, a platoon which is three to four squads, and finally a squad which is six to ten soldiers. An above corps is a field army, last used during Desert Storm, is made up of 50,000 plus soldiers and Germany had seven armies on the Western Front in August of 1914. And just to give you another perspective of the size, the first German army alone required 550 tons of food every day, and its 84,000 horses consumed 840 tons of fodder daily. When I first heard that, I thought, wow, that's a lot of shit. And I wasn't kidding. That really is a lot of human and horse poop. That's 1,390 tons of food being consumed daily just for the first army. How much was going out the back door, if you know what I mean? Sounds like a real shit show. And they needed these resources. 
The German soldiers have been covering about 20 to 25 miles a day on foot. Each soldier shouldered around 60 pounds, which consisted of ammo, mess kit, food, tobacco, equipment, and more. I think it's fair to say that the average man back in 1914 was physically weaker than the average man of the later part of the 20th century and today. I think that's an honest statement. Men today are taller and more broader built. And that could be from the food supply to vitamins and supplements, bioengineered food, etc. I'm not a scientist, but I think this could be the reason. I don't think men back in 1914 would have any issues with sitting in the coach section of airplanes today. I mean, if I have the middle seat between two other guys, I'm saying to myself, Oh shit, we're just bigger people today, plain and simple. I've been on multiple 20 to 25 mile movements on foot in the army. I've even done a few 30 plus milers with a minimum of 80 pounds on your, on your back each time. And it sucked. There's no sugarcoating it. It sucked. When you stop for a break, you can't take off your boots or your feet will swell up, making it hard to put your boots back on. You got hot spots and blisters the size of walnut shells. God forbid the skin on your heel rubs off early in the movement because that's when you just want to die. Then there's chafing. And God really forbid you if you have to take a dump because there's no showers coming your way anytime soon and monkey butt will consume your soul. At a certain point, pulling your butt cheeks apart will sound like Velcro. I'm not kidding. Your body is in pain at a certain point. I don't care who you are. I don't care how tough you are. At a certain point, you will feel that pain. And to do that multiple days in a row would have really sucked, especially for those men who were smaller than us. They were pushing themselves to the limit to get to the objective. If they didn't have the food to replenish their bodies with that amount of energy they were expending, there's no way they would have made it. There's stories of the weaker men actually falling to the side of the road, collapsing and dying. It's August. It's hot. They more than likely died of heat heat exhaustion or heat stroke. What lacked in physical structure was made up with mental toughness for those who drove on. Technically, the war officially kicked off with Germany's first aggressive move when they entered Luxembourg to seize its rail lines. After seizing the lines, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd armies now headed for Liège, Belgium, which seemed to be a very popular place at this point in time, and that's because Liège was the center for railroad and water transportation. Its rail lines connected Germany and Belgium with northern France. Germany needed these lines to haul in resources, needed to support the war effort like food and heavy artillery. Before the Germans got to Liège, the Belgian, ar- the Belgian army had blown up bridges and rail lines that ran from Germany, which was a big thorn in the side of the Germans. The city was surrounded by 12 heavily reinforced concrete forts located on high ground, which could protect Liège from invaders in all directions. Each fort contained 8-9 to nine big guns under armored turrets, which had, ex- excellent f- which had excellent fields of fire over the frontier. The forts were actually quite advanced for that time. They were built to withstand direct hits from the heaviest artillery known to be in service. The name of the forts starting from the northern spot going clockwise are Liers, Pontesse, Barchon, Avegni, Fleron, Chanfonte, Amborg, Boncelles, Flamal, Halogne, Lonsen, and Lanten. Again, I apologize if I butchered that. Each fort was about four to five miles from the main city and about two to three miles apart from one another. General Gerard Lamont, the elderly Belgian commander of Liège, had about 8,000 troops in the forts, plus an army that consisted of a division, which was about 24,000 infantry, 500 cavalry, and 72 field guns. 
Le Mans was ordered by King Albert to hold his position at all costs, which is defined as death before surrender or retreat. The morning of August 4th, the Germans were approaching Liège. They already had a strike force of about 30,000 men, including cavalry plus field artillery, ready to take the forts. They marched along the roads leading into Liège, followed by horse-drawn artillery, singing Deutschland über alles. As they reached the River Meuse, they discovered that the bridges had already been blown. As they attempted to cross on pontoons from the north, east, and south positions, the Belgian army opened fire. And up to this point, I believe most of the soldiers still thought about the war as some sort of game being played by politicians or some sort of fantasy. But now it was real. This was no game. The Germans found themselves in actual combat, being shot at and hit by real bullets. There was now wounded and dead soldiers lying on the ground. They now got to see firsthand the carnage of what this new type of warfare was capable of producing. Machine guns and artillery opened with rage. Guts spilled out of abdomens. Heads split apart like melons. Blood began to puddle with its stench. Soldiers with missing limbs. Men desperately calling for help and the look of shock on faces as death reached for their hands. One soldier stumbled in confusion after his jaw was shot off and unable to speak. And through this bloody mess, by nightfall, the Germans had succeeded in crossing the river from the north. During the day, the Germans overran villages and trampled the Belgian crops. The shooting on the troops by the resistance of Belgian soldiers increased. They now heard the words being yelled, Man hat gechosen, which translates to one shot or somebody has shot at us. I think we can define this as a sniper. They were now imagining enraged civilians shooting at them from within or behind houses. The Belgians referred to the German army as Huns. This word is derived from the ancient barbarian invaders. The village leaders, knowing the potentials of the enemy, posted warnings in the community, ordering civilians to turn in their arms to town authorities because if caught by the Germans, they might be subject to the death penalty. They were instructed not to fight or insult the enemy and just to stay indoors. Basically, don't be stupid and get the town killed. Regardless of the warning, on the first day of the invasion, the bravado German army started shooting civilians and priests. This was part of the Oderant Dumb Metuant theory, developed by ancient Roman Emperor Caligula, which meant, let them hate us as long as they fear us. The Germans also burned the village of Batisse as an example. In Barbara Tuckman's The Guns of August, she writes about a German officer who came by the village a couple days after it was burned. The officer said, quote, One could see through the frameless window openings into the interior of the rooms with their roasted remnants of iron bedsteads and furnishings. Broken bits of household utensils lay scattered about the street, except for the dogs and cats scavenging among the ruins. All signs of life had been extinguished by the fire. In the market square stood the roofless, spireless church. End quote. In another town where three Germans had been shot, the same soldier described that scene. Quote, the whole village was in flames. Cattle bellowed desperately in the barns. Half-burned chickens rushed about demented. 
two men in peasant smocks lay dead against the wall, end quote. On August 5th, the Germans attacked the four easternmost forts of Barchon, Evegny, Fleron, and Chonfontaine with field artillery and infantry assault. But the field artillery wasn't able to penetrate through the fort's reinforced concrete. The fort's big guns now opened fire on the German infantry, completely slaughtering their front ranks. Men were being cut down, ripped to pieces. Even at the points where the Germans could break through and make it to the forts, they were torn apart by the machine guns from inside. It's said that along the German attacking points, the bodies of dead Huns piled up to a yard high. The German commanders sent wave after wave, spending lives like they meant nothing. And to the high command, they didn't mean anything, because they had enough reserves in line ready to make up for the losses. A Belgian officer described the scene of August 5th, saying, quote, They came on line after line, almost shoulder to shoulder, until we shot them down. The fallen were heaped on top of each other in an awful barricade of dead and wounded that threatened to mask our guns and cause us trouble. So high did the barricade become that we did not know whether to fire through it or to go out and clear openings with our hands. But would you believe it? This veritable wall of dead and dying enabled those wonderful Germans to creep closer and actually to charge up the glasses. They got no farther than halfway because our machine guns and rifles swept them back. Of course we had our losses, but they were slight compared to the carnage we inflicted on our enemies. End quote. And this was the horrible trend that was set for the Great War. Soldiers being sent in wave after wave only to be, only to be slaughtered, and sadly the body count would get much larger. The order given by officers, which every soldier feared, the words, I'm ordering you to die, is exactly what life meant to the high command and most officers during this war. Nothing. On the night of August 5th, the German strike force brigades reassembled for a new attack. They would now push through Fort Fleron and Fort Avegny, and would also be accompanied by General Erich Ludendorff. At one point, the assault force came to a halt on the road. Ludendorff drove up to find out what the problem was. He found Major, Major General von Vousseau dead on the ground. He had been shot down. Vousseau was the first death of a general rank in the Great War. Ludendorff took command of the 14th Brigade and gave the orders to attack. Luck found the 14th Brigade early that morning when Fort Fleuron, for some reason, failed to open fire on them, which exposed an opening. Ludendorff ordered up a field howitzer and opened fire. By 2 p.m. that afternoon, the 14th Brigade broke through the ring of forts, and they now had eyes on Liège and its citadel. Ludendorff's patience for the Belgians were nearing an end. Upset that he was wasting manpower and resources, fighting a people who should just let them through, he sent an ultimatum to General Le Mans, saying, Stand down, let us through, or I'll bomb your city. Well, the truce failed, and on August 6th, a Zeppelin LZ airship sent from Cologne dropped 13 bombs on the city, killing 9 civilians, setting another trend for the 20th century. Ludendorff then sent another truce request, and again it was denied by Le Mans. This part is kind of cool. Thinking outside the box, Ludendorff sent 30 men dressed as British soldiers to Le Mans headquarters. The soldiers drove up and asked to see the general, but Le Mans' aide cried out, They're not British, they're Germans. The aide was instantly shot down, but his comrades got revenge fighting off the Germans, saving Le Mans, who had escaped to Fort Lansin, which was west of the city. 
a bold move by the Germans which seemed to have shaken up Le Mans. There at Lonsen, he would continue to command the Belgian defense. He also realized the Germans were closing in on Liège and the forts wouldn't hold out much longer. But King Albert thought otherwise. He believed at this point that the French and English would be coming to help and that they could stop the German advance. French President Poincaré insisted on sending five corps to help the Belgians, but was halted by Plan 17, which Joffre refused to alter the plans of attacking from the center into Alsace and Lorraine. On August 5th, the War Council in London announced the British were putting together an expeditionary force to help Belgium. Although it wasn't the size they were looking for, they would take any and all help they can get at this point. On August 7th, Eric Ludendorff, along with the 14th Brigade, entered the city without waiting for other brigades to pull up for support. There was no resistance because Le Mans had already pulled back the Belgian 3rd Division protecting the city to regroup with the rest of the army at Louvain. Ludendorff approached the citadel, which he believed had already been occupied by his advancing soldiers from the 14th Brigade. As his car pulled up to the citadel, he found it odd that there was no German soldiers around, so he got out of the car and banged on the gates, which were locked. The gates opened, and the hundreds of remaining soldiers inside immediately surrendered to Ludendorff. Ludendorff described when he arrived at the citadel, saying, quote, Thinking that Colonel von Oven was in possession of the citadel, I went there with a brigade adjutant in a Belgian car which I had commandeered. When I arrived, no German soldier was to be seen, and the citadel was still in the hands of the enemy. I banged on the gates, which were locked. They were open from the inside. A few hundred Belgians who were there surrendered at my summons. The brigade now came up and took the possession of the citadel, which I immediately put in a state of defense. End quote. And I'm going to end this episode right here. I'm really enjoying the lengths of these episodes, and so far it seems to be a good groove for me. An episode every two weeks seems to be working. I really hope you're enjoying it so far, and I would really appreciate any feedback you can give. You can find me on Instagram at OTTGW Podcast and on Facebook. You can also email the show at OTTGWPodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for part two of the Huns of August, and thank you for listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.